Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey. And today I wanted to say something uh, about Bruno Latour, the French philosopher and, and sociologist and anthropologist, uh, really a difficult person to, to pin down, a very interdisciplinary thinker uh, who just passed away recently. So Bruno Latour, born 1947 and uh, died October 9, 2022. So I want to say something by way of a sort of, you know, in memoriam. Um, obviously, there's many scholars whose passing uh, does not make its way into uh, this podcast, but I figured, you know, every now and again, especially if somebody is, is very relevant to the world of e ecological thought, uh, and in this case, somebody who's very relevant to my own work, and uh, for at least, you know, 20 some years, uh, I've been really uh, influenced by Latour's work. So I figured it's just say a little bit about him. Um, so that those of us who are already familiar with his work can have a minute to reflect. And for those who are not familiar with his work, this might be a, a bit of an introduction. So, you know, you might know the name Latour, uh, if you're interested in wines, uh, Latour is a, a, a wine family. And so he comes from that, but he left that world of, uh, of winemaking and he decided to become a scholar. And in particular, his early career was really about following scientists around to see exactly what science was about. So you could call this a philosophy of science, but in a way it's more of like a anthropology of science where you're kind of like doing ethnographic work, like actually following around scientists in the laboratory as they develop hunches and inklings and ideas and how those eventually turn into things like facts. And so, you know, as uh, first book was a collaborative work with Steve Wilgar, this would have been like 1979, called Laboratory Life. And it was one of those things, just following people around in the laboratory and realizing that facts aren't just, you know, handed down from on high. Facts are constructed. And so immediately people started criticizing this as some kind of like postmodern relativism uh, that says like facts don't matter. And he's like, no, not at all. I'm saying they do matter a lot. And that the way they matter is precisely that they're built up with all kinds of chains of uh, references and signifiers and different actors that get involved. Because you don't just have the scientists doing the work, you also have the things they're working with. The laboratory itself, the various apparatuses and instruments you use, the things you're studying, all this stuff comes together and produces a fact. And uh, another book uh, I think that was maybe one of his most famous, uh, Science in Action. This was in the 1980s. And it's all about following scientists and engineers through society. So similar kind of thing, just saying that when you really look at the practices that go into science, you see how, uh, how delicate facts are and how scientific truth is produced in a certain way. And that that delicate part of it doesn't mean it's, it's bad. In fact, that's what makes science so robust is that it's able to revise itself constantly. So that revisability isn't a detriment to science. It's actually something uh, that helps us understand its, its real power. So if you've heard of the field of science studies or science and technology studies, STS, science in action was kind of a, a, a bit of a, a gospel for those folks. So the first book I read by Latour was uh, We Have Never Been Modern. And he wrote that in uh, the early 90s. And I think I read it maybe about 20 years ago and found it just very illuminating, both because of his kind of writing style. It's, he's very interdisciplinary, um, but he has, you know, kind of 
storytelling, even the lyrical side to some of his work, uh, while also being very engaged in science and philosophy. And uh, We Have Never never Been Modern is all about the fact that what we think of as modernity really never happened. If we think modernity was all about a nature-culture split, we you know think about Rene Descartes, right, saying that we need a philosophy that can help us become masters and possessors of nature. So mind-body dualism, culture versus nature. And Latour is like, well, that was always an excuse people were using. That was a kind of justificatory framework. But in fact, if you look at what happened in modernity, there is no nature-culture split. In fact, there's a proliferation of hybrids, of all kinds of things that involve a lot of nature and a lot of culture. Uh, an easy example would be something like Louis Pasteur discovering microbes, right? Microbes, is that nature or culture? Like, well, I guess we could call it nature because microbes are part of nature. But at the same time, the articulation of what microbes are was a cultural practice. So it's hard to disentangle the cultural part from the natural part. So instead, he just wants to talk about actors. So microbes are an actor, a telescope, a microscope, right? A scientist, a textbook. These are all different actors. And actors always have a natural side of them. They always have a cultural side. So they're really hybrids, nature-culture hybrids, we could say. Uh, so I found that kind of illuminating because so much of what we hear about uh, modernity or modernization really assumes that there was this great split that happened between humans and nature, when in fact the split never happened. People just talked as if there was a split to justify certain kinds of practices. So don't want to get into all that too much. I will say that this idea that we can follow around different actors and rather than articulating everything in relationship to a nature-culture dualism, we can just look at the different connections that actors make in the networks that they're part of. So it's a different way of doing analysis. This became known as actor network theory, right? So you're always just looking at things and the relationships that those things have with their larger contexts. So no need to suppose a nature-culture binary. You can just follow the actors around and see what they do. So it's a very lively world to step into. Nothing's just passive. This idea that, you know, culture is active and na nature is passive. Nothing's passive in Latour's world. So another book, Politics of Nature, uh, was a really important one um, for me, at least. Uh, somebody who was doing ecological work in graduate school, I came across Politics of Nature. And I'd already read We Have Never Been Modern and some of his other stuff. And uh, again, with politics of nature, the whole idea is that nature is political, right? Again, we often think politics is something that culture does, not something nature does. And he's saying, no, we can't separate them. And so the decision-making processes whereby scientists or philosophers or anybody studies what's considered natural, these are always part of a political system in politics, not in the sense of like partisan politics of like what party you belong to or anything like that, but politics in the sense of negotiations, right? Decision-making processes. So nothing's just given. Facts are fabricated. It's part of a, a political process. Uh, important to note. Uh, otherwise, there's this kind of fundamentalist idea that facts are just handed down from on high. And, uh, and that's not the case, right? And every fact that's out there about the natural world is something that people had to negotiate and make decisions about. Even just the way that scientists have to work with peer review publications and things like that, it's all political. And again, that could seem like he's trying to kind of take the steam out of science 
and out of our understanding of nature, uh, but not at all. Saying this helps us understand how science works so that we can revise it, make it more robust, and uh, make it applicable to different parts of our lives. But the idea that you have a scientific fact, and that means that it would be some kind of trump card against politics or culture or religion or anything, like, no, not at all. It's part of a network just like anything else is part of a network. So deciding what to do with science to apply it to politics is never easy. And we certainly saw that uh, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, that what the facts say doesn't immediately translate into some kind of political program. The facts themselves are political. So deciding what to do with them means we have to negotiate. We have to be part of collaborative decision-making processes, right? Nothing's given. Everything's part of interconnected processes and relationships. So if that sounds kind of like process philosophy, uh, you wouldn't be wrong to make that connection. Bruno Latour, very influenced by the process philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, uh, also the kind of pragmatism of William James. So he's citing these kind of, you know, Anglo-American thinkers and uh, very popular in the Anglo world. In the English-speaking world, uh, Latour really took off and became pretty famous. It took a little longer for his own uh, French population to really notice the significance of his work and, and to take it very seriously. Uh, but I think some of the citations to people like James and Whitehead uh, made him very palatable uh, to English-speaking audiences. So a lot to say about his influences, uh, but you know, I'll just leave it there for now. The main thing I really want to say is how important he was for ecological thought. We've heard a little bit about nature-culture dualism already, thinking of how our understanding of nature is always part of a political process. But he started getting more explicitly involved with ecological thought uh, the more he kept writing. In particular, he was very interested in Gaia theory, right? this idea that comes out of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis. And the basic point being that Earth is a lot more like a living system than it is like a machine, right? And that Earth is something like a, a self-regulating uh, system where the life, land, air, and water are all in this kind of balance that's very dynamic and sometimes chaotic, but self-organizing. And the more we understand that we're part of Gaia, the more we'll be able to live on this planet in as peaceful and sustainable and, and just a manner as possible. But if you don't really face up to the fact that, you know, that Gaia is what we're inhabiting or who we're inhabiting, uh, then we're going to have problems. We're going to kind of take the earth for granted. We're going to think of nature as some kind of background against which we're, we're living our lives. And of course, the earth isn't a background. You know, we don't live on the earth. We're active participants in Gaia, right? Uh, you might say that, you know, along with life, land, air, and water, human intelligence or the noosphere is another part of Gaia. So we need to understand ourselves as active participants in Gaia's evolutionary unfolding. So uh, the book that uh, he articulates that in is Facing Gaia, which was based on a series of Gifford lectures that he gave. So highly recommend that book. It's very good. And uh, especially if you're interested in thinking about Gaia. He, this, you know, was something, you know, Gaia theory has been around since the 70s. Uh, Latour really helped it uh, enter into mainstream ecological discourse in a very uh, powerful way. And it's been around, right? But it's it's come back a lot lately, especially as people have started talking increasingly about the Anthropocene. 
So he's like, the big challenge is the Anthropocene is for humans to face Gaia and understand that the face of the earth is the face of this living system, this dynamic process that we're part of. So similarly, he had another book called Down to Earth, uh, Politics in the New Climatic Regime. So again, thinking about climate change, thinking about the Anthropocene, and thinking that, you know, we have a few options as a species, and the option that's going to keep us around and make sure that we avoid a mass extinction event is uh, coming back down to Earth, learning to be the terrestrial beings that we are, and not thinking of ourselves as somehow superseding the rest of the planet. So again, this goes back to his you know early work of just rethinking the uh, idea that there's a nature versus culture kind of opposition. If we think of humans as somehow on the earth, like culture would be on top of nature, it's like, but that's not who we are. We think of ourselves as these kind of surveyors of the planet. We are the planet, right? We're part of Gaia. We're an integral part of Earth's evolutionary unfolding. So we need to come back down to Earth, have a safe landing. You know, uh, so a very simple point in a lot of ways, but obviously one that it's been very difficult uh, for our civilization to, to wrap its head around. Uh, obviously, action on climate change has been very slow compared to what it needs to be. And why? For Latour, a big part of that is we're still just not thinking of ourselves as terrestrial beings. We're not thinking of ourselves as earthlings, right? But of course, humans are earthlings. We evolved here. So um, most recently, I believe it was just last year, 2021, uh, he had a book come out about the uh, pandemic called After Lockdown, A Metamorphosis. And so again, really thinking about the importance of humans reintegrating with nature and how these ecological crises, including viruses, are things that we're not going to be able to handle if we don't understand the way that we're part of Gaia and the way that our understanding of nature is always political. Because of course, you know, early in the pandemic, we had some ideas of what the virus was, but the way that it was being communicated really affected the way that people responded to it. And that communication was always ongoing. And it got really confusing. Sometimes people would use scientific facts and say, well, here's what the facts are. So everybody should do this. And then a little, like a couple of months later, they'd give some new facts and then say, maybe we should do this and this. And people say, you're changing the facts all the time. What's going on with that? And for Latour, he's like, that's science. So it's always a mistake to treat a fact as if it's the final truth of everything in the world. And therefore, here's how we should follow it. We need to be open to the re revisability and the ongoingness of scientific facts. And so that means that there's really no going back to normal, as so many people would like to uh, go back to normal. Hopefully we can find a new normal. Like, no, there's really no normal when it comes to Gaia. There's just ongoing evolutionary processes, and we need to be part of those. We need to learn to participate in this kind of ongoingness. So all entertaining books, uh, at least to me, I think he's a, he's a good writer. Uh, in a way that makes him accessible to a lot of people across disciplines. So if you're just a generally educated reader, if you're a philosopher, if you're a scientist, uh, if you study religion, if you study anthropology, whatever it is, uh, I feel like he's uh, a good communicator to where very complex ideas turn into something like a story that you can follow along with. So uh, I also want to say a little bit about his relationship to religion. 
of course, this is a podcast about religion and ecology. And uh, to me, when I first read, like, We Have Never Been Modern, I think, oh, this is such an interesting thinker. I'd like to hear what he has to say about religion. I'm always curious. And uh, so he's written a couple things about it. One was a project called An Inquiry into Modes of Existence, A-I-M-E, AIM, An Inquiry into Modes of Existence. And that was a whole interdisciplinary collaborative project trying to map out the different ways of being uh, that are part of our society. So, you know, how does law relate to science, relate to religion? And uh, religion in that context becomes a very specific mode of existence that needs to be taken into account. So he was very serious that you can't really understand what's going on in our society if you don't understand religion. So that's an important part of his, his thinking. And so he's, you know, not necessarily like a spiritual writer at all, but he's one, uh, a writer who definitely takes religion uh, very seriously. A more kind of uh, confessional book about religion that he wrote is called Rejoicing, or The Torments of Religious Speech. And that focuses really, uh, and you can, you know, hear his own kind of spiritual commitments coming through in that book, um, Latour, you know, from a Catholic family. And uh, you can tell that he has a, a deep devotion uh, to his faith and to talking about God, and yet is very hesitant about how to talk about God, because that's often part of God talk. There's a sort of hesitation about talking, because how can speech possibly be adequate to the mysteries of the divine? And in there, he really makes an important distinction that a lot of what makes religious speech so powerful is that it isn't just talking about something. It's not uh, just locutionary speech, right? In terms of speech acts, there's always this distinction uh, between uh, performative speech versus speech that just says something indicatively, right? Constative speech, locutionary speech. So he's interested in the performative facts of, of religious speech, how religious speech gets something done. I mean, I think just imagine if somebody says, do you like tea? And you say, I do, right? Do you like green tea? I do. You're just saying I do about liking green tea. But if you're in a religious ceremony, let's say a wedding, and somebody says, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And you say, I do, that changes you, right? That transforms you. You were a single person. Now you're a married person, right? You were a, uh, maybe a bachelor and now you're a husband something has changed. The same phrase, I do, right? But when it's in that ceremonial ritual context, it actually changes you at this kind of existential level. So that's a helpful way to understand religious speech. Otherwise, some of it just seems, frankly, ridiculous, right? There's so much about religion that you're like, what are these myths talking about? What are these scriptures talking about? Well, they're not just talking about things. They're evoking a transformation in the subject. They're evoking some kind of existential change in the listener or the reader. So it's not just about trying to describe a state of affairs. It's about trying to open you up to a new kind of engagement with the world or with yourself, with your community, or with whatever is your ultimate ground of being. So a uh, really beautiful book. And again, just like with science, he points out that Religious speech is very vulnerable and tentative. It's always open to revisions. And that's not a weakness of it. That's precisely its strength, right? To point out that religious speech emerges in different networks, 
that change over time isn't to say that it's not meaningful or, or true, but it is to say that it's uh, not uh, simply given. It's not handed down from on high, right? And so even something like uh, the, the Mosaic law, right? The Ten Commandments given to Moses seem like they're handed down from on high, and yet our interpretation of them isn't. The way we interact with them, uh, the way that they are interpreted differently in different communities over time, right? This is actually the strength of religion, that it is open, that it is possible to, to, uh, to change these traditions, to change our communities, and to always revise our relationship to God and to one another. Uh, extremely important to think about in relationship to the field of religion and ecology. So much of what this field is about is precisely revising our traditions in light of contemporary ecological crises, in light of uh, scientific discoveries, like the evolution of the universe, like Gaia. And uh, we need to keep that revisability open, right? So if we're retrieving our traditions, reevaluating them, reconstructing them, um, that kind of process understanding of religion is extremely important, not only for keeping religion relevant, uh, but also for, for keeping it engaged, right? It'll mean stuff to us, and it'll be useful as we're trying to navigate our way back to earth, coming down to earth, to have a safe landing so we can find a, uh, a safe operating space here on earth. So that's, that's enough out of me. There's a lot of uh, reminiscences and obituaries that have already come out um, in just the couple weeks since Latour passed. And uh, so I don't need to try and give any kind of comprehensive overview of his thought, but I did want to just say a little bit about him uh, because such an important thinker for ecological thought and important thinker for uh, engaging with religion and ecology and very influential for so many of us who are trying to understand the kind of intertwined and tangled world where nature and culture aren't so separate. Uh, so I hope that you've uh, enjoyed this, gotten maybe a couple hints of things you might want to explore in the future, or if you've already been familiar with Latour, hopefully this has been a good time to just reflect and appreciate uh, a great thinker. So I'll go ahead and leave it there, and we'll be back soon with some more conversations for you. So in the meantime, take care. <laughs>